Um, if you would, grab your Bible, open up to John 13. John 13. And uh, eventually we're going to land there. Uh, right now we're not going to go there yet, but eventually we will land there. I, I was thinking it seems only appropriate for me this morning to pull out my Satan and Demons sermon since it's uh, Halloween, right? I mean, how often does Halloween fall on a Sunday? So uh, I, I was thinking it was appropriate, but then I was realizing, you know what? Maybe I'll save that for later. I'll save that for uh, maybe when our church grows a little bit more. I don't want to scare too many people off. Uh, Just kidding. Um, We actually will go through some tough stuff. We're not afraid to go through tough stuff. And this morning, we're going to have to go through some difficult stuff. So hang in there with me. Um, We'll go through some difficult stuff, but we'll do so um, leading to some really good news and a really cool picture from the Lord. We're not talking about Satan and demons. Maybe someday. But... um, Hang in there with me. It's going to get good. So um, you're turning to John 13, and we will eventually land there. So just keep your finger on that. We've been in this series that we're calling Here to Serve, stemming from Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, where Jesus says that the Son of Man, that's his favorite title for himself, he says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so it was really clear that the heart of Jesus was the heart for service, that Jesus' heart was for us to be a people who served and, and served others sacrificially. And so because of that, that is therefore our heart. That's something that we want to be a part of our DNA as a church, that we would be very clearly here to serve. And I just want to maybe read you guys our our vision statement. Maybe some of you haven't heard it before. Um, I would encourage you to familiarize yourself with this. Our vision statement is this. This this is being who we want to become. Uh, It says, Charles River Church will be a transformational community of believers committed to Christ-centered living, uh, serving as his hands to touch Boston and beyond. So Charles River Church will be a transformational community community. That means that we will be a community of people who have been transformed and are constantly being transformed by Jesus Christ. We will be committed to Christ-centered living. That means that Jesus is not at the top of our list. He's not even number one on our list of priorities. He's right in the middle and everything else revolves around him. So we are committed to Christ-centered living. And flowing from that, we would then serve as his hands. That means Jesus says that we are are the church, we are the body of Christ, and so we are his hands, reaching into the community, serving each other, that we would live as his hands to touch both Boston and beyond. And and for us, we want to serve Boston. We we pray that God would be gracious and allow us to to start churches in Boston and then beyond. So the next step, if you kind of follow Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the next step for us would be maybe the region of of New England. We'd love to see some other churches started in time in very influential cities in New England. Hartford, Connecticut, Portland, Maine, Providence, Rhode Island. I mean, just we're asking God for that. But then not just there, Boston and beyond to the, to the rest of the country and to other places overseas. That is, that is our heart. And, and just so you know, maybe you don't know this, but for us, Boston and beyond looks a little bit like this. Of, of the giving that you guys give uh, at the end of the gathering, uh, we, we pass baskets and we give, and it helps the ministry of the, the church here. But of that giving, 10% of that money then goes to, to serve the mission uh, that we're on. So 10% of that would go, 5% of the 10 goes to domestic 
missions. The other 5% goes overseas to serve other churches, other ministries, and, and, and missionaries, and, and to, to meet needs of, of people overseas. And then starting in December, just so you know, we're, we're tacking on another 2%. Now we're at 12%. 2% of that money will then go to help specifically people who are doing what we're doing right now. They're broke as a joke like we are right now. And so that 2% will help them to then plant churches um, here and abroad. And so just so you know, 12%, that's what we're, we're shooting for. And we'd love for God to grow that number. But that's one thing that we're doing just practically in, in, in finance to touch and reach Boston and beyond. And so humble serving, humble giving, that was the heart of God. And, and, and that is going to be our heart. And so far as we've been going through this series, uh, we've seen uh, that Jesus has demanded it. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus demanded that we be humble and that we serve. With his disciples, they were starting to consume themselves with greatness. And he says, this, this whole self-seeking, self-righteousness, pride, elevating yourself, he demands it. He says, it shall not be so among you. So he demands service. And then last week we saw in Mark chapter 12 that he applauded service. So when he sees this, this lady, this widow who is sacrificially giving, humbly giving, he applauds it. He says, see this, I want you to live like this. And, and he elevates and he exalts in the, the proper time. And so we've seen he's demanded it, he's applauded it. And then this morning what we're going to see is he lived it. He lived it. And this will be the last of the series. I could go on and on and on about examples of Christ living out and teaching service. But this will be the last of, of this series uh, on service. He lived it. He lived it. It, it, sounds, it sounds really good, right? Jesus is humble, sacrificial, selfless servant Jesus. Sounds, sounds nice, doesn't it? We, we, we like that. We're, we're comfortable with that. In fact, that has become the popular Jesus of, of our culture. Jesus, the humanitarian teacher. People, people love that Jesus, and, and he certainly was. But the problem is, is, is in our culture, we tend to drift towards extremes, don't we? I mean, let's just think about this. Politically, we, we tend to drift towards an extreme. Maybe in our hobbies, we, we get excited about something. We just consume ourselves with that, and we just don't really balance it well, and we just drift towards an extreme. I, I think about it even in terms, of, in, in terms of books we read. Have you ever just read a book, and then suddenly that's, that's the answer to life? And then you read another book, and that's the answer to life, and we just drift towards e- extremes. And, and this also happens, I need us to know, that this happens with God as well, that we drift towards extremes. And so we see, maybe in this series, we see this humble, selfless, serving Jesus, and we drift towards that, and people in our culture have really said, that's the Jesus that I like, and, and that's an extreme we drift toward, but we cannot drift towards that to the neglect of this holy and righteous God, and so what we often have is we have people consumed solely with grace, and we have other people extreme consuming themselves with, with the holiness of God, and so what happens is we have people who who, who just, just have no desire, no concern for holy living. We have people who become legalists, and, and we are called to be a people who are balanced. And so we aren't to be people who drift towards extremes. But often, as, as C.S. Lewis, I see in a lot of his readings and, and writings, says he calls us to a balanced Christian life. And so what we're going to do this morning is be careful to ask God for a proper 
perspective. As we look at Jesus, we will see that he humbly came to, to serve and, and to serve sacrificially, but he also, know this, he also is God and God of the universe. John chapter 1, he was there at creation. He is the, the, the God of the Old Testament. He is creator. He is holy. He is controlling the nat- natural elements. He is, he is parting the sea. He is parting the river. He is the one who caused the sun to stand still for Joshua to have a little more time to defeat the enemies of God. He is the one who, who is appointing the rise and the fall of kings and, and kingdoms. He is the one who is sovereign over everything. Jesus, this humble Jesus, is the same Jesus that we, we hear of in, in Revelation chapter 1. We go from the Old Testament to, to, the, to the end of the New Testament. Revelation chapter 1, John, who had walked with Jesus humbly, now sees Jesus in his glorified state in Revelation chapter 1, and he says that when he saw him, he fell down to the ground as though dead. This is the same humble servant, sacrificial Jesus. And so we need to know that Jesus is glorious, and Jesus is holy, and Jesus is righteous. There's another verse that we've been saying over and over in this series from Acts chapter 17. Paul says, our God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need anything. He came to serve, not to be served, because he needs nothing. He needs nothing. And so I want us to, to begin by, by picturing this. Let's just kind of go through a little bit of a narrative. Picture this. We have, we have God at the beginning, before creation, and, and, and it's just God. God is. He, he gives his self-identification to Moses, and he says, I am. I, I, just, I, I just am. That is who I am. Therefore, I am. Therefore, I am not a created idea. I am. Therefore, I am not subject to to anyone because I made everyone. I am not subject to anything because I made everything. I just, I just am. I am. That's, that's God. He's there. He's always been there. He will always be there. He is God. We also know from Scripture that, that God who is there and is and always was, he is, he is triune. He's triune. We have God in three persons, three tri-unity Tri-unity, Trinity, we, call, we refer to our God as, as the God of the, the he's the Trinity, right? And, and we see in Matthew chapter 28 that he is Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, three persons, and, and, and we'll tackle Trinity maybe later on as we grow up as a church. In Hebrews, the Bible talks about how it, it, it can serve as milk and both milk and meat, or milk and, and solid food, and, and babies have milk and not solid food because they would choke on solid food. And for us, maybe as a new church, I don't want us to choke on the Trinity quite yet. And so we'll get there soon enough. But let's start with, let's start with some of the milk here, that God simply, he's triune in perfect unity with himself, but yet he is, is distinct persons. So he needs nothing. He's completely content in him, himself. So creation is not, let's know this as we begin the narrative, creation is not God needed anything. Creation is not I need a friend. Creation is not I'm bored. Creation is not I need a little entertainment so I make some puppets. That is not creation. God was all set. Creation is God is creative. And so he finds pleasure 
in, in creating. And so he creates us. Creation is God is, is personal. And so he finds pleasure in creating beings who can enjoy him. And so he creates us, Colossians chapter 1, 17 says, for himself. It says all things were created by him and all things are created for him. And, and so we are here for him. We are here to live in a relationship with, with him. And we're here to live in the satisfaction of knowing him and being known by him and, and worshiping him. It is, a, it is a privilege. God doesn't need us. He was all set, yet he gave us life and he gave us breath and he gave us existence. And how did he do that? Simply, the Bible says, by speaking. Just simply speaking. Let there be, and there was. I mean, think about that power. Just let that overwhelm you. I, I want us just maybe just to sit in that for a second. Here God is in need of nothing. And he says, let there be, and, and here we are. And we're here because God spoke. Now, obviously, the other option to, to that, to our existence, is that there is there was this, this incalculable series of, of coincidences. And so we are here with physical and emotional uh, people. We have deep longings in our soul. We have this capability to think. We have this capability to love. But it's all just unrestrained biology, right? That's the other option. But I don't know about you, but I, I see order as I look around in the world. And, and I see loads and loads of what we would call circumstantial evidence. They would say it's unrestrained biology. There's, there's in the Bible tons and tons of eyewitnesses and tons of tons of, of, of eyewitness testimony here. And so it would hold up in court if we were to hold it truly to the system of law that we hold to. And so I really believe, and maybe you need to search your heart and, and, and dig in, press in with the Lord. Do you really believe that, that he created us on purpose? We are here by him with life for a reason. So just picture that again. Just sit in that. Here's God. He makes us. He didn't need us, but he made us. He gave us life, and, and so we're here. We're here. Now, next step. Yet after all of that, after all of that, we turn from him. All of us, we turn from him. Isaiah chapter 56 or 53 verse 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each to our own ways. We've all turned, and we've turned from him. And so we've turned from God who was before all things. we turn from God who was creator of all things. We, we've turned from God who is sustainer of all things. We, we've turned from him, and we live our lives like we are it. We live our lives like, like it's about me. And, and I, I struggle with this as well. I'll just be honest. I struggle with this, living my life like it's, it's me, and I'm the center of, of the universe. And what we're doing this morning is just asking God, God, would you give us perspective? Would you give us some perspective from your scripture? And so we're going to go to the book of Job. Don't turn there. I'm going to put the scriptures on the screen behind us. But we're going to go to the book of Job to see God's power and to see God's greatness. And eventually we will land in John chapter 13. So again, keep your finger there. But I just want to see uh, God's power and greatness. It is all over the Bible. But Job is really, really packed with some direct teaching towards Job and towards us. So Job is where we're going to go. In Job chapter 26... It tells us that everything that we know about God, everything that we know about the power of God, it says it is only the outskirts of his capability. God who spoke things into existence, Job chapter 26 says it's only the, the outskirts and his speaking, what we've seen, 
was only but a whisper. Imagine if he yelled. Imagine if he commanded. I mean, just this power that God has is only the outskirts of, of what he is capable of. And then we see in Job chapter 38, 12 chapters later, Job gets to this place in life where Job starts to shake his fist at God. And he's upset with God and you and why and how could you? And he's upset with the Lord. And so in Job chapter 38, I want to just kind of get a sampling of some verses that maybe give us a taste of the power of God. And we'll put them on the screen here. Job 38, verse 3. Here's what God says to Job. He says, dress for action like a man. He starts it off like that. Dress for action like a man. In other words, get your cup on, Job. And he starts to talk to him. He says, let's talk. Verse 4, he says this. He says, Job, after Job's shaking his fist, he says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Verse 5, he said, Job, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. He goes on, verse, verse 12, and we're just going to give you a sampling. Verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began? He goes on, verse 18, have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Have, can you comprehend the expanse of the earth, Job? He goes on, verse, verse, verse 21, you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Do you sense the sarcasm of God? He's saying, Job, you have some gray hair. Job, you're an old man. You live long. You must know. You must know all of this, Job. You've got it, right? We think we're wise, don't we? He says, Job, you know you were born. You have a lot of days under your belt. Verse 34, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Do you have that kind of power, Job? We see all over the scriptures God commanding the natural elements. We even see Jesus, who is God in the flesh, commanding a storm to be still, to, 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 to quiet. And it listens. He goes on, verse 35. Job, can you send forth lightning that they may go and say to you, here we are? Job, do you have that kind of power that you can send forth lightning? And it does its business and it comes back and says, we're back. What do we need to do now? Do you have that, Job? He goes on, Job, who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Job, do you understand? You've got to understand. You don't know everything. I do. I made it all. I'm over this. I, I, I've got this. I've got this, Job. Verse 37, Job, who can number the clouds by wisdom? And so he goes on. He says, Job, I got it. I know everything. I number the clouds. Scripture elsewhere tells us that he's numbered every hair on our head. We also see that a bird doesn't fall from the sky without God having control. You go into the next chapter of, of, of Job, and it starts to get in. God is, is in on the birth of every animal. I mean, he's got it all. He's got it all, and effortlessly, this is our God. And listen, it's not just this one chapter. It's four chapters of God talking like this to Job. And so God is telling Job, God is telling us, he's saying, I am God, I am him who is and was and, and is to come. This is me, and you are my creation. And so this is what I've been studying all week. You are my creation. You are finite, Josh. You are tiny. You are tiny. And my understanding, my power, my greatness is unfathomable, says the Lord. Just incredible stuff. And I want you to see all this because as we've been seeing the past few weeks as we've been talking about service, what precedes service 
is humility. And we've been seeing as we've been looking a bit at the disciples, these disciples who have been probing Jesus about greatness, right? Jesus, who is great? Tell me who's the greatest. Jesus, who's the greatest among all of us? Jesus, can, can we sit at your right and your left? Uh, just us two, not everybody else. I mean, can we, can we have that privilege of just probing Jesus about greatness? And can you just imagine Jesus hearing this? After all the stuff that we read, that is our God. Can you imagine him hearing these guys just consuming themselves with, with greatness? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity who was there at creation, speaking things into existence. It was God through him. We read in, 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 in John chapter 1, Jesus who was uncreated, Jesus who was in control, who was unfathomably great, having to be probed about someone else's greatness. Can you imagine this? I mean, it's just crazy. Yet, we do this all the time too. We're so consumed with me, and me, and me, and, and me, and me, my status, my needs, my, my issues, my, my rights, consumed with our rights. And this is where it starts to get really tough to swallow as we see this God. Is that, listen, up against God, we have no rights. You have to know that. Up against God, we have no rights. Against others, yes, we, we have rights, very clearly. I mean, God fought for this often. He spoke through Paul in Galatians 3, 28. He, he, he fights for equality. He says there's neither Jew nor Greek, so nation to nation we're equal. He says there's neither slave nor free, and so he's, he's bashing that modern concept that they had back then. There's neither male nor female, so that was a big issue back then. He says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So up against each other, we have rights, right? We have rights, of course, and God fought for those. But when it comes to us and God, the creator, he's the creator of us. And so we have no rights up against God because he, he created us. And here we see Job shaking his fist at God. It's tough. It's tough, but it's true. And so God says to Job, he says, Job, where were you when I? Job, do you understand that, that I did this? Job, have you ever done what I? Can you do what, what I? Job, do you know who you're talking to? Disciples, do you know who you're talking to? Josh, when you pray, do you know who you're talking to? I mean, do you really get it? And we have to ask ourselves, do we realize who we're talking to when we pray? Do we realize who we're talking to when we sing? Do we, do we, do we realize who we're talking to, who we claim when we say, I'm a follower of Jesus? Do we get that? I mean, this is some tough stuff, hard to swallow, but incredibly important because we are in a man-centered society. We are in a post-enlightenment society where we think we're so smart. We think we're so central to everything. And God says, you're not. You're just not. And so let's continue on a bit in the the narrative of, of God to bring us to our text this morning. Genesis chapter 1, God is because he just is. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 25, we see God creates everything on the earth for us to enjoy and to turn back to praise to him. And then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, through all of chapter 2, we see God creates us so that we might enjoy him and and worship him. And then in in chapter 3 of Genesis, we turn from him and, and creation turns against its creator just Let that sink in a little bit. And then in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after we've broken this whole thing with our sin, we get our first promise of a Savior that God 
through Jesus would wound Satan. He would wound him with a fatal wound. He would crush him. Satan would just give Jesus just a a light wound. That would be the cross. But God, through Christ, would defeat Satan and sin and death. And so catch this here. At this moment, in in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it happens. At this moment is when we first see it happen. Let's call it this morning the descent. This is when we see the, the descent. It's one thing for God to communicate to his creation. It's an entirely different thing for God to communicate, humble himself enough to communicate to his creation who has just rebelled against him. I mean, that is a major descent of God. And so God says, I will, rather than saying you're done. Remember, remember that, that he says, if you eat of the, the fruit here, you will be dead. It's over. And so rather than saying it's over immediately, he shows us grace and gives us some time for him to, to, to bring about restoration so that we might place faith in him. So he descends, and, and rather than killing us instantly, he descends and says, here's what we're going to do. Here's how it's going to work. Here's how it's going to work. He creates, and then we turn from him, and then he communicates to us his plan. So God descends to us, and then he says, what's going to happen is I'm going to descend in the flesh, and I'm going to restore this thing. I'm going to pull you out of the prison that you chose to enter into over, over me. And all throughout the Old Testament, what we get is we just get God preparing us for how he's going to restore this thing. We get God preparing us for who he's going to restore this thing through, and that is the second person of the Godhead, Jesus. And so the whole Old Testament points us to Jesus. And so the, the flood points us to Jesus. There is one door on the boat that will bring about life and, and, and salvation from the rest of the destruction of the world. One door in, in, in John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. And so the Bible points us to, to Christ. There's the tabernacle, points us to Jesus. There's the temple, it points us to Jesus. David and Goliath points us to Jesus. We, t- we like to make it like this little self-help story about how we can conquer our fears. God says, no, no, Jesus of the line of David will defeat Satan and sin and death. And so it points us to, to Jesus. The sacrificial system points us to Jesus. It was brutal. It was disgusting. It was bloody. And people must be thinking, is this going to go on forever? This is just, how do I, how do I ever end? I mean, this is terrible. And God says, no, I'm going to send my, my son, the perfect sacrifice, and he will, he will end this. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Old Testament points us to, to Jesus. Then we hit the Gospels. We hit the Gospels and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see Jesus coming. We see Jesus coming as a man. God coming as a man. And so we go from descent to a, yet a, another descent. And then we see that he doesn't just come as a man, but he comes through a, a virgin. And so he enters through scandal. And people are thinking, is he illegitimate? What's going on? And so there's yet uh, another descent. On top of that, then we see that, that there's no hotel room for God to be born in. And so he's, he's, he's born in, in a stable, laid in a feeding trough where drool is. It's just disgusting. So yet there's a, another descent for God. We, we go on to see that, that as he, he grows up, 
he begins to serve under his earthly father, Joseph. And this God, who is the God who speaks things into existence, he, he works as a carpenter. And now he's using his hands. And so rather than saying, let there be dining room set, let there be chair, let there be table, he says, no, I'm going to work with my hands. And so yet uh, another descent. But that's nothing, is it? It continues on. Then he calls people to, to be his disciples, where rabbis would call these these intellectual kids, the cream of the crop kids to follow. Who does he call? He calls fishermen and tax collectors, guys who are already working the trades of their fathers because they were unsuccessful in academia. And so yet uh, another descent. He goes on at one point, he's accused of being crazy by his family. And he tolerates it. Yet uh, another descent. He associates with, with people that nobody else would associate, with, with women who were wrapped around scandal, with people that nobody would touch. We see yet uh, another descent. We just see descent after descent after descent. Constantly putting up with people calling him a blasphemer of God. Constantly putting up with arrogant, self-righteous people questioning him. And what does he do? He answers their questions. And so we just see descent after descent after descent of God until we get here. John 13. Let's read it. John 13, 1 through 5. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him so we'll stop there for now do you see what jesus does descent after descent after descent after descent after descent lowering lowering humbling humbling this is god who was there who needed nothing who was unbelievably unfathomably great lowers himself until he gets to the lowest point where he actually is now down on his knees. And it says that he takes uh, some water and he pours it into a basin. He's on his knees. And he takes a a towel and he does something to, to, to wrap it around his waist. And he gets the lowest place possible in the room. And he's on his knees before the disgusting feet of his disciples who have been walking in sandals in this dusty region, having dirt all over their feet, he gets right before their feet and he begins to wash their feet, rub their feet. I'm such a perfectionist. And, and I'm just, I'm, I always wonder, how, how good of a job does, does Jesus do? I mean, are, his, are these feet like, you know, sparkling by the time he's done with them? I mean, it's just incredible. Jesus is on his knees washing feet. Just sit in that for a second. This low place in the room compared to where he came from, compared to his history, compared to to who he is. This is our God. And so I just want to ask us three questions this morning. And the first question is this. Do you understand the heights from which he descended? Do you understand the heights from, from which he descended? He is great unfathomable, holy, uncreated, powerful God, and he's on his knees washing feet of rebellious men. 
washing the feet of his creation. This is love. This is humble, sacrificial, seemingly foolish love from the creator. Look at verse 1. It says this. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. So understand that he loved these guys. They were his own. He loves us as his sheep. He loves us. But he loves us not just to his knees, but he, he goes more than that. He actually goes below and he, 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 he takes on death. So he's buried. He dies for us. There's a foreshadowing of his brutal death at the cross here. It says he loved them to the end. So again, another humble descent. Verse 2 says the devil already put it into Judas to betray him. And so he was there washing the feet of Judas who would betray him for chump change, sell him out, humble descent. Verse 3 goes on. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, rose from supper to wash feet. So he knows who he is. He knows that God has given him everything, that he is in control, that this whole earth is his, yet he rose so he could then descend down to his knees to wash feet of people. I mean, just humble, humble descent. Imagine the, the humility necessary to do what Jesus, God, just did. And so the question is, do you understand just how vast of a descent this is for God? He goes from the heights of the heavens to his knees and then even lower to be actually buried after being brutally, brutally murdered, crucified, washing the the feet of, of physically and spiritually dirty men. This is love and this is humility directed at the disciples. It's love, it's humility directed as well this morning at all of us, that he would give his life, Matthew 28, 20, 28 says that he would give his life as a ransom for many. That means we chose Satan and sin and death. We chose that kind of bondage. And he says, I will come down and I will give my life as a ransom. I will buy you back with my death and my resurrection and I'll take you back. I mean, this is crazy. It's kind of crazy to think about how the humility of God what it does for the undervalued, the, the lowly in society, is it places value on them and it encourages them. And yet the humility of God here also takes the prideful and the arrogant in our society. And when we see what he did, it humbles us. And so it's got this twofold purpose, which is really, really incredible. And so the answer for those of us who struggle with humility, the answer for those of us who struggle with, with service. The answer is not go do it and fake it like you care. There's so much false humility in our society. That's not the answer. The answer is come before God. And as you come before God and you start to see who he is and what he's done, it will quickly bring you to your knees and will quickly cause you to say, I want to serve you and I'm humble before you. And he'll say, now you go and you serve others. So the answer is not fake it. The answers come before him who descended, and he'll show you what humility really is, and he'll clothe you with it. Question number two this morning is this. Has he served you? Has he, has he served you? He went through a lot of trouble to become flesh and to, to go to the point of death. So has he, has, he served, has he served you? Look at verses 6 through 11. It goes on. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. He's talking about Judas here. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. And so can you just imagine, Jesus is down, he's washing feet, and he comes before all the disciples. Can you just imagine how stunned they are? And they're sitting there, it appears, in silence as he's washing their feet. But he comes to Peter, and Peter is never silent. If you read the Bible, you read the New Testament, Peter is the one who always speaks way too soon. And he comes to Peter, and he starts to wash Peter's feet, or he goes to wash Peter's feet. And, and Peter says, Lord, no, 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 you're not planning on washing my feet, are you? And, and, and Jesus says, yes, it doesn't make any sense to you now, but, but it will. And, and Peter says, Jesus, never, never will you wash my feet. Jesus, you're, you're, you're above this. He, he struggled, see, with that balance. He had the understanding that God is holy and God is righteous, and God is powerful, but he struggled again with that balance, and so he's drifting towards one extreme and not realizing that Jesus is a servant, and he, he must serve. And so Jesus goes on, he says, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You have no share with me. Jesus is saying, Peter, this is, this is symbolic, that I'm going to wash your sins away by my, by my death, and if you don't receive me washing you, if you don't receive a gift of my death, for you, you have no part in me. You cannot have the relationship with me restored. Therefore, you cannot have my heaven. There you, therefore, you cannot have victorious Christian living on this earth. You cannot have a share with me if I do not wash you, he says. And so Peter goes on. He says, well then, don't wash just my feet, but wash my hands and my head. And Peter's missing the point. I mean, he was excited. He wants to have a share with Jesus, but he's missing the point. Jesus goes on and says, no, 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 no. I wash you, and I wash you only once. And I, I die for you, and I, I give you life, and life abundantly, and life eternally. That sacrifice for you, that, that receiving of it by you, that faith in it by you, is once. You don't need it over and over and over and over again. And so Peter was missing the point, but what he did get right is he didn't want to be separated from Jesus. He said, I do not want to be separated from Jesus. And for all of us this morning... Listen, you do not want to be separated from Jesus. Satan is using our culture to blind us, but in the end, you're going to come before him. And if you are separated from him, man, it's, it's, it's not good. It's not going to go well for you. And so we need him to wash us. We need him to, to serve us. He died on the cross as the ultimate act of service, as we read again in Matthew 20, 28. He died on the cross to, to serve us, to deal with our, our sin. And he served in the ultimate way. And if we reject it, we have no share with him. And so the call this morning, I want to implore you, is to receive that. If you've never received that, to receive it. And to say, please wash me. I take it. And what we do very simply is we cry out to God and say, God, I need it. I need what you have done. I just place faith in that. I trust in that, and I turn from myself, and I turn to you, and I, I say, yes, I, I receive it, and I place my, my faith in it. Wash me. Wash me. And so let him serve you. And a final question, maybe more for Christians in the room, is will you serve him? 
Really, will you serve him? Are you serving him? Look at verses 12 through 17 now. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. That would be many of us. We do call him teacher and Lord, but he goes on. He says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. There's that equality. Verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you who do them. The scripture elsewhere calls us to be doers of the word not hearers only. And so for the Christians in this room, he says, listen, do you understand what I've done? It's almost as if saying, he's saying, get this. Do you understand what just happened here? Get this. He says, you call me teacher and you call me Lord and you're right. But if you really believe that, if you've really placed faith in that, and if I'm really changing you, then you're going to do what I tell you to do. And you're going to serve me and you're going to wash the feet of other people. You're going to serve them. And this is a huge call on our lives from the Lord. I really believe, Christians, that if you've been changed by the Lord, if you've really been saved, you're going to live for Him. You're going to live for Him. There's so many people banking with a false security on something they did as a child or as a teenager, yet they're not living for Him. How does that work? How does that work? Jesus says, no, 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 no. You say it, you got to live it. You got to live it. And that stems from a life really changed by him. So the three questions to review when we close. Do you understand the heights from which he descended? So we get that. It changes a lot when we get that. We meditate on that, focus on that. Next question is, has he served you? Have you received his gift? And the final question is, will you serve him? Are you serving him? Are you going to serve him? Let's pray.